Hello and welcome to the ninth episode of Cryptids Decrypted. Today we've got one of my favorite guests coming back for a second spot. His name is David George Gordon. We talked to him previously actually on episode one uh, where we chatted about Bigfoot. Today we're talking about lake monsters, sea monsters, interdimensional beings, you name it. We, we really ran the gamut in this interview and it's a fun one. Uh, you may note that there's a couple of weird audio segments in the interview. Uh, one of those is because I forgot to re- press record on my Audacity, and so part of it's my Skype audio. And then the other one is because my cat decided it was a good time to knock just about everything off my desk. Uh, if you want to see my face when that happened, you can check out the video recording of this interview, which is on YouTube, uh, which also has some pretty terrible lighting. So, you know, got a lot of selling points there. Real quick before we move on, uh, if you like the show, Share, retweet, like, subscribe, anything. Just, uh, you know, let us know that you're listening. Let other people know that you're listening. It's the best way for us to grow our audience. And we really appreciate it. So thanks again for your support on that. And then last thing before I dive into the interview here. Recently, I created an audio drama. And you might be like, what's an audio drama? It's essentially an audio book with sound effects, uh, different cast members, and music. And this one is about a man who dresses up like Bigfoot because he really just wants to maintain the legend. And, you know, let's just say he takes things a little too far and uh, maybe murders some hikers. And a tabloid reporter calls actual monster hunters on him. This is going to be an eight-part audio series. It's all up for free. All you got to do is go to anchor.fm slash man dash of dash the dash mountain. Uh, I'll put a link in the description. Thanks again for listening. I'll talk to you at the end. This is going to be the ninth episode of Cryptids Decrypted, and you were our first guest uh, about three months back. And we've had a, a lot of interesting people on since then, but I'm excited to have you back on because last time you were here, you teased us a little bit about your knowledge of sea monsters. That's right. That's my current fixation is aquatic cryptids. There we go. Yeah, so you were... Um, I think the last time we talked, you were about to go out looking for Ogopogo, right? Yeah, you know, what? I've been doing a couple of little field trips. The book that I'm working on, which is about actually the quest for Cadborosaurus, the creature that lives supposedly in uh, the Strait of Juan de Fuca between uh, Vancouver Island and the state of Washington. Right. Um, So that's what I've really been looking on. But I've also, of course, been very interested in the stories about lake creatures as well as river creatures and ocean creatures creatures. So so that's been keeping me busy. Uh, Ogopogo is probably, probably right up there with uh, Sasquatch or Bigfoot in terms of pu- popular recognition. Most people that live out here kind of know what we're talking about. And uh, when we say Ogopogo, even though that word itself means absolutely nothing, it actually, I learned, it came from a British dance hall song. It was popular <laughs> really? 1920s. It was not Native American or even Northwesty. It was just adopted by the people who lived up there. That's so strange. Now, for for people who don't uh, necessarily know about Ogopogo, can you tell can you tell me a little bit about like what I guess what sets it apart from other sea monsters or lake monsters? What makes Ogopogo special? Yeah, you know, it actually lake the uh, lake it lives in, Okanagan Lake, is really large and really deep, like far down a thousand feet. 
So it's kind of one of those conjectural, who knows what's down there kind of thing. Um, Native Americans in that region of Canada, right over the border of, from Washington state, not very far, far north of there, um, have had a long history of stories about this signif spiritually significant creature that lives there. And there's lots of stories when you go back and read them about how Native Americans, if they were traveling on the lake by canoe, made sure that they had some kind of sacrificial animal to throw to this creature. I'm not going to try to pronounce its actual name because I'm not particularly fluent in uh, Salish or whatever the language was up there. Um, but it has a long history of going back. It also has a more recent history of people sighting this very long snake-like creature that lives in the lake. And last year, in 2018, there were three no reputable sightings of this creature. Um, this year, 2019, there was actually one. So it's something that continues to be seen, but people do not have really much of a clue as to what it is. Interesting. How does it compare to something like the Loch Ness Monster? Like what makes Ogopogo and the Loch Ness Monster different or are they the same? Well, I think they're similar in that we don't really have a clear idea what it is. Yeah. I read recently they did a DNA analysis of water in Loch Ness. Yeah. I was actually kind of suspicious of this. And they went, oh, it's obviously the signal of a great, a lot of eels. Yeah, I was reading that too. It's wild. Why do we all jump on believing that? because we want to get some rational answer there, I guess. That seems kind of far-fetched to me, that you can rule out things by base, the basis of what DNA we're recognizing in that water. At any rate, they are very similar. There's also what I really became fascinated in. There's a real uh, strong belief among Native Americans in that region uh, particularly in eastern Washington, that all those smaller lakes are interconnected by um, underground uh, aquifers, you know, underground sources of water. Um, in this case, flowing into the Columbia River. I'm not really sure whether the uh, Okanagan Lake is part of that system, too. But they're saying that, you know, it's quite possible that a large creature could actually have access to everything, including the Columbia River, which then flows into the ocean. So really? there might be some going back. And that same kind of theory is true about Loch Ness. They say Loch Ness might be connected by underground channels uh, to the ocean, the uh, North Sea. Interesting. So where... Um which which tribes are you speaking with that were talking about the the underground rivers? I'm 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 curious about that. Or I guess the channels, as you would say. Yeah, you know it's funny. I I was giving a a library talk. I like to give programs at libraries. In fact, I wish I had done more of those uh, about Sasquatch before I actually wrote that book, because there are a lot of people in the audience who know more than I do and aren't you know aren't holding back on telling me that. I was giving a talk in OMAC, which is in eastern Washington, and a guy came up to me afterwards. He was Native American, and he was part of what they call the Colville Confederated Tribes. So it's actually not a legit, it's more of a reservation grouping of people from different tribes that are all living in this very large reservation that might be the largest one in Washington state. But afterwards, he came up to me and said he had actually seen a creature uh, swimming in uh, Omak Lake, which is one of the lakes in that region, uh, when he was a kid. He was driving in the car with his dad. His dad told him, you must be 
out of your mind to think you're seeing that. But um, he did have this very clear, what he said, looked like a plesiosaur, you know, an aquatic dinosaur, bright green that he saw swimming along uh, down below them as they were driving. So uh, at this point in the broadcast, my cat thought it would be a really good time to knock everything on my desk onto the floor. So rather than making you hear that very loud crash, uh, I'm just going to have this little interlude, and then we'll get back to the interview as if nothing even happened. Tribal beliefs. Well, I hope that wasn't anything dangerous there. No, that was my own cryptid. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry. At any rate, he was the one who told me the story about the... Um, the belief in all these lakes being interconnected. It was funny because after I met this gentleman, I knew his name because I had him write it down, but I didn't have any way to contact him. So kind of like the proverbial uh, closet Googler, I was lurking around trying to find this guy online. And actually what I did find was a story from his grandfather that's in one of those collections of I don't know, Native American tales from the Northwest or something like that, where he's talking about um, how all the lakes in eastern Washington used to be much larger, but they were all drained into one central repository, which I believe is, they're talking about the Columbia River. That was his story. It was drained by Coyote, who's, you know, a character that appears in a lot of stories as kind of the, the trickster and like Loki, if you will of uh, Native American stories. So it's a story that goes way, way back. Interesting. So do they um, believe that those those connections are still there in any of the places, or do they believe that they're sort of long gone and then the creatures are then stranded in these lakes? No, I think they believe that there is enough of a connection that there can be some Congress. Uh, the same gentleman who told me the story, and I'm hoping to get a written version of it from him sometime soon, told me about a story that happened to his great aunt where she, she was actually asked by one of the tribal elders to come with her on a trip, but to bring something of great value along with them. And she brought a dress that had been made by her parents. It was like a tribal outfit, tribal attire. Well, the elder then threw this dress into the water of this lake that they went to. And he, of course, that was very upsetting to his great aunt way back then. Yeah. And they then went a few weeks later to another lake. They're like there on their knees praying, and this and this uh, dress pops up out of the water. So it obviously had traveled from one lake to another somehow through magic, whatever you want to say, and appeared before them in another lake. So Interesting. Story. Yeah. Oh, I was curious. Do you know if anybody's uh, done research on these connected tunnels at all, or if there's anybody out there looking for them? Or well, just from googling around on uh, on the internet, I found a great map that showed all of the aquifers of the Columbia River basin, the the plateau rather that that all these lakes would be situated on, and um, they're quite extensive. Uh, it didn't really give me an indication how large the passages from one area to another would be from looking at this. But that whole area, I mean, that's basically where well water comes from. And before they got really carried away with uh, irrigation of the Columbia River, which I'm sure has changed things forever, um, that's pretty much what people relied on, whatever they could bring up through a deep well to those aquifers. 
Right. Yeah. I used to. So I grew up on the Columbia River on well water, like uh, like right along the river. So I remember that. You know, I was going to say I've spoken with this one guy at great length and then another gentleman who actually runs an interpretive center and is quite wonderful. He has a book out and everything um, at the uh, Oroville, uh, whatever that is. It's like a museum, visitor center and museum. And we talked and went back and forth a lot. He sent me some more stories about other lakes that have lake monster stories connected to them. There are yeah. a lot. It was actually surprising to me. But I also really, it made me, one of the things I've already learned, and I really have not written much of this book yet, as much as kind of gathered my evidence. Yeah. And I kind of wonder, you know, we all by consensus agree about certain things. The sort of the scientific method supports things like, you know, the molecular theory which quite frankly is a theory. So is our theory of genetics. We don't really understand other than a description of what happens when a cell divides, how, who's calling the shots there. Um, well, but we all are in agreement with it because it's, you know, it's Western science, or in this case it would be European science brought to the new world. Well, Native Americans have their own beliefs and their own sense of what the way things work too. And they're all in consensus for the most part about that. And it's not necessarily in, uh, it doesn't necessarily match up with what the way we think that things work through Western science. So it kind of opens up a lot to me about what is reality. And actually when I was talking to the first gent from OMAC about, you know, these stories, you know, I was talking to him about, you know, well, how could a dinosaur be in this lake, which is not really supporting a lot of other life other than, you know, stocked trout and things that they throw in there. Um, you know, how can this thing be in there? And, you know, his take on all that was, well, that's sort of tribal belief. And that's really what the, what the way we see things. Uh, it made me really kind of question, well, what is reality? You know, it depends on the culture you're in, quite frankly, what you're going to accept. And what you're not going to accept. Yeah, I do think that's interesting. And there are always things that are going to challenge our reality, for sure. Especially especially when it's a narrow-minded reality. But that's a, it's an interesting way to look at it. You know, and I started, I started, I'm sorry for interrupting. No, I started to talk to him further about all that stuff. And he said, well, maybe these things are actually from another dimension or from another planet or what have you, which I've heard about Sasquatch as well. And he's saying, well, maybe they're just like on a spirit walk. And like the way people go on walkabouts in Australia, let's say, to uh, just experience something else. So they come here briefly, experience things, and then go home. Hmm. Interdimensional Lake Monsters would make a good title for a, uh, for a podcast uh, episode or, <laughs> or, or, or a book, I think. I think people would read that. Oh, so I should also say one of the stories that was shared with me by this uh, helper in... Uh, Oroville, uh, was a story about another lake. I'm trying to think which lake it was. But he says, you know, everyone's sitting on shore. They're watching this man who's trying to measure the depth of this lake by lowering a rock tied to a, a rope. And it gets to a point where it's still too deep. So he's using his hands and going further down. And all of a sudden, something grabs him and spins the canoe around several times and pulls him in and his dog, for that matter, they disappear. So does the canoe. And they say, you know, months later, other people who are traveling around are finding human remains in other lakes. 
they couldn't tell whether they were necessarily connected to that lake or not, or those are the remains of that guy. But they're also finding pieces of broken canoe. Huh. So where was that? Oh, you know, again, in eastern Washington. And I'm trying to think what lake that is. I'd have to go look at my notes. Yeah. And a lot of this stuff goes back to the 1880s. There was a lot of uh, ethnographic work being done by uh, researchers, even you know, from the University of Washington, let's say, collecting stories and, and uh, wisdom from the various tribes. And you can go to the special collections room at the University of Washington. One of my great possessions in life is a library card for the UW. And uh, look at these books that are from the 1880s. And, you know, they're interviewing people who are in their 50s talking about what their parents or grandparents told them. So that's, these are stories that go way, way back. It's interesting how Washington is such a, a hot spot for myths that way. And I feel like it does. It's because it has such you know, strong cultural ties to the past. I feel like a lot of those things endure for more, you know, for more time than they do in other areas. You know, there's a lot of stories about all sorts of odd stuff in Washington state. Uh, we have more than our share of UFO sightings, for example, or, you know, Sasquatch stories, or you name it, uh, river monsters. Uh, there's plenty of stuff out here. I had a nice conversation with someone, again, in eastern Washington. Why is all of this? And, you know, they said, well, there's just this whole thing about the geographic, geological anomalies uh, that make up our state. If you think back to way back when, there was a lot of stuff with... Uh, Oh, gosh, what is her name? Now I'm having a senior moment here. Shirley MacLaine, there you go. The yeah. actress was convinced that Mount Rainier had all these powers because it was one giant crystal. Yeah, I remember there's a lot of interesting stories about Mount Rainier and aliens specifically and all sorts of stuff there. It's wild. And we do have a lot of interesting geography, too, with like the basalt floods and... Yeah. Like, that's my favorite thing about Bend, Oregon, is on one side you've got, like, pine forest, and on the other side you have volcanic rock on two sides of the same river, which is wild. There's a wonderful book called Roadside Geology of Washington. So it's <laughs> like, as you're driving, it says what you're going through. Oh, that's really cool. Which is great. But it reads like an action and an adventure story because there's so much going on with not only volcanoes, but also the shearing of the sea floor as the two plate tectonic plates are colliding. And this rock that you see in eastern Washington used to be under the ocean. So it's kind of amazing. Yeah, no kidding. So you you uh, mentioned that you went to to British Columbia to do some research on Ogopogo. I'm curious, like, you know, so while you were there, did you see anything and where did you go? Well, I have to tell you, ironically, we didn't make it across the border. <laughs> yeah. There were fires right around, starting it around oh, that's right. the Colville Tribes Center but particularly in between where we would normally go to get it up to Okanagan Lake. And when we got as far as Oroville, we were actually talked out of it by the gentleman who runs that interpretive center. And he was like, why are you going to go all that way when you're not going to be able to see anything anyhow, except whatever you see is going to be across the lake from where you can actually drive to. So he did a good convincing job. I still really want to go because there are museums there. There are statues. There's even an underwater statue that scuba divers can get photographed next to and things like that that make me think it's an important part of the story. But, you know, I have to tell you, my real interest is in this creature Ogopogo, a cousin, let's say, that's uh, 
originally was seen in a lot in the 1930s. Cadborosaurus is what, or caddy is what it's commonly called. And it's this large creature that was, it's been kind of extensively studied from the eyewitness reports that go back quite a ways. And they see that a lot off the coast of Victoria, British Columbia, on Vancouver Island. In fact, Cadborough Bay is where this creature gets its name. There were a lot of sightings and stories from that particular part of Vancouver Island. And when I went there last year to start this project, last January. I'm going back again, my wife and I, uh, this January. We had such a good time, but I felt like we barely scratched the surface of what we wanted to find. So we did go to Cadborough Bay. I don't think it's like we're going to stare out at the water and see Cadborosaurus, although who knows. Um, but the chances are slim. Um, but there's just lots and lots of stuff worth chasing down. I'm particularly interested in um, in the, the painter Emily Carr. Yeah. If you're familiar, she's a kind of iconic to Vancouver Island, and there's statues of her monkey woo he had a pet monkey there's actually a statue down at the harbor of that there's a lot there's a museum full of her paintings she's a marvelous painter and some of her paintings well most people think of her stuff of uh she had forests and trees and totem poles she also has this really great series of paintings of the coast the rugged coast and rocks and you know bull kelp and all this stuff and I'm really interested in what she was looking at while she was painting it, because yeah. most of her paintings express kind of spiritual energy. And I'm sure there's some story in there that she has. Uh, she's no longer alive, of course. But in her writings, I bet there are stories about sea creatures, what could be out there. I think that that's captivated a lot of artists over the years, just because, you know, the ocean is so vast. That it's, I I think that's almost a lot easier for people to stomach than something like Bigfoot, just because we're discovering new things in the ocean every day. It wasn't until the 1960s that they discovered the undersea volcanoes. They're like a mile down. And prior to that, they didn't know those existed. And they assumed it was so far down, there couldn't possibly be life down there, let alone complex life. And in actuality, there are all these things like giant tube worms and white octopi and all sorts of things people had no idea existed until they started going down there in those little uh, submersibles, either manned submersibles or robotic ones. And yeah. then all of a sudden there's like a whole new menagerie of life down there. Yeah, even the giant squid, right? We didn't find evidence of that until very recently, like within the last decade. And it's funny because they would find pieces of them either washed up on shore or even wilder in the stomachs of uh, sperm whales, let's say, who are actually feeding on those creatures way down deep. So they'd find eyeballs of these things, but they never didn't actually photograph a live, traveling, healthy uh, giant squid until like I think the 1980s or something like that. By accident, yeah. they got some film. Yep, that's right. Yeah, and I mean that's you know that's literally the stuff of fiction too. Like you know, lots and lots of stories written about giant squid, but. Yeah. And I have to say, speaking of uh, the stomachs of sperm whales, there's a marvelous <laughs> story, and this is definitely one of my escapades. I think next spring I will definitely go there. There was a whaling station way up north in uh, the, what was then called the Queen Charlotte Islands. 
Now it's known as the Haida Gwaii, but way up in along the coast of British Columbia. And at this whaling station, um, in I think the late 1920s, maybe the early 30s, I'd have to look, um, they were they were what they call flensing, you know, cutting out the parts of the usable parts of a sperm whale. And when they opened up its stomach, they found this thing that they believe was a baby Cadborosaurus. Hmm. And they took photographs of it. There are like four photos that you can find um, in archives of this thing. And it's very hard to tell whether you're looking at a decomposing something else or if you're looking at a completely unique creature. But a lot has been written about that a particular discovery. Unfortunately, they didn't save the carcass. I think yeah. it was decayed, it smelled bad, and they pitched it. Yeah, I remember I, I was reading a little bit about that too because I think a lot, a lot of uh, a lot of the scientific community starts to think that those are like the corpses of basking sharks, I think, or a giant oarfish. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and you know what's funny about the giant oarfish because I've talked with people who seem to know what they're talking about. Those giant oarfish don't really exist this far north. They, huh. I, they, according to the experts, they don't exist um, beyond like Southern California beach beaches where they periodically will wash up. But ironically, um, I found articles, including one in Fate magazine, if you know Fate magazine. I haven't read that one. Oh, it's a magazine that was put out by the Fortean Society. I think may may still exist. But at any rate, I actually bought a copy of this magazine from the 60s um, that's talking about Whidbey Island here in Washington, and people finding this giant uh, washed-up carcass of an oarfish. Hmm. When I sent it, that article to the guy from uh, the the world's foremost authority on this creature, he was like, "Nope, they got it wrong." So we don't <laughs> know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> Wild. Yeah, that's it's interesting. So another thing from the last time I talked to you, this reminded me. You you had said that you've seen a sea monster before. That's right. And, you know, yeah. it's funny to me because, you know, sometimes when I'm giving talks about Sasquatch and someone tells me this amazing story and I go, well, gee, did you write it down and report it to anyone? And they, of course, did not. <laughs> and I'm sort of like, well, duh. And it's your first thing you need to do. Well, this actual uh, experience I had was probably, I don't even know the date, but I was going to say it's probably a uh, 2001, maybe 2002, I was actually um, tide pooling near Port Angeles, which is a city that's almost directly across from Victoria. Right. So I was in the zone, if you will, of finding Cadborosaurus, and we had been tide pooling, and the water was starting to come back in. You know, it's great to go out when it's low tide, for right. those of you who've never done this, and look at all the stuff that normally would be underwater and now is exposed for several hours until the tide comes back. Uh, when the tide started coming back, my friend and I decided to have lunch and we were sitting on a rock watching the water come back in. It was a nice, nice day and all. And we were having our lunch and I saw this enormous fin. I would say, say if you imagine a, bat, a, uh, a uh, orca whale yeah. or a killer whale, they call them, uh, that big black fin on the back of a male that was like that size, except it wasn't black. It wasn't shiny black. It was actually kind of a muddy brown color. And it was working its way along right at the area where the water would drop down 
where there was a cliff drop off and the water was coming back in. Now, it definitely was not an orca, and there's no reason why one would be that close to shore, unless, of course, it was, you know, gasping its last breaths. Um, we watched this thing for about 15 minutes, and then finally it kind of got out of sight, and we both kind of went, gee, I wonder what that was. <laughs> but I didn't really do any looking, at, looking around or trying to find further information at that time. It's only recently that I got obsessed with that sighting. Yeah. What, what did you think it was? Well, I guess my first reaction, based on its color, which was this sort of muddy brown, was maybe we're seeing a basking shark. Because they do occur, not so much as they used to, in uh, the Strait. They, yeah. For some reason, they actually launched a campaign to get rid of them because they were interfering with fishing nets. So all the way up to the 1960s, there was like a bounty on basking sharks. And they actually may have overachieved, particularly in British Columbia, because they just don't see them anymore. Yeah. So I think they actually wiped them out. But that seemed like the likely suspect here at that time. But on the other hand, also, why would it be that close to shore? Usually those guys, they're plankton feeders, so they like to be way out, away from uh, obstacles, rocks and things like that, in the open sea where they can open their mouth and just strain plankton. Kind yeah. of like a, yeah, because they are—they're—they're not—they're not a toothy shark, right? They are—they're a filter feeder. Basking sharks, baleen shark, are baleen whale-like creatures. Yep, interesting. So, if it's not—if it's not a basking shark, then do you think it is the like a Cadborosaurus? Is that something that would be on a Cadborosaurus or like a like a big fin like that? They, supposedly, they have—you know—if you, particularly if you look at drawings of what people are reporting, they have a large—they have large fins. Unlike the uh, the oarfish we are describing, which has one really long fin that runs the entire length of its body, that's pretty distinctive. Um, these actually have more like flippers. So maybe I was seeing the flipper of one that was moving sideways right. in the water, and this flipper was sticking out of the water. I'm not really sure. Interesting. I also yeah. have one, one of the other things I've gathered. My one of my prizes is actually an interview with a guy. Um, who in 19, in January 1, see, I can remember the date of that, <laughs> January 1, 1939, was at Yahats, Oregon. That's along the Oregon coast. Yep. There's a place called the uh, Devil's Cauldron. Oh, I love that place. That's really cool. Uh, yeah. There with his wife, kind of taking a walk on New Year's Day and staring out at the Devil's Cauldron, which is a giant, you know, indent in the rock there and they saw this creature cadborosaurus swimming towards that that opening then it made like a i guess it would be a right turn and went continued south along the coast so they actually got in their car and followed it for a few miles before they lost touch with this thing uh, what i have is is actually a hypnotic regression of this gentleman done in the 1980s um, by a hypnotist was taking him back to that very day and place and having him react as he would for the first time. It's a fascinating recording. Yeah, so hip, so for those who don't know, hypnotic regression is basically trying to take you back to a past memory by removing your inhibitions, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah. and it's interesting to listen to this gentleman who's a skilled hypnotist work because he's like working his way back and, and forward for that matter 
you know, let's talk about your wedding. What did you wear at your wedding? And he's describing all of that. And eventually they go back to 1939 with his then new, new bride yeah. and this experience. But he's telling the hypnotist in like real time what he's seeing. It's pretty fascinating. That's very interesting. So would that be, in your mind, one of the most credible sightings you've had? Or is there, do you have a more silver bullet piece of evidence? Well, the real silver bullets, I, and including this recording, I actually have to say it came to me from a gentleman. His name is Paul LeBlond, or Professor mm -hmm. Paul LeBlond. He, used to, he is an oceanography professor at University of British Columbia in Vancouver. And I met him quite some time ago, I would say maybe in the early 80s, um, when I was told of a study he was doing, he collected, I think, 50-some 50 eyewitness reports of people who had seen something in that area on either side of Vancouver Island or going all the way down into, into the Oregon coast. Um, and then he actually, in a very uh, scholarly way, much of the reason I love this report, um, it's not a wide-eyed, wide bug-eyed, you know, lunatics report. It's very uh, cautious and scholarly. And he describes the 50-some sightings. He breaks it down into three kinds that people routinely see. Yeah. So there's three somethings out there with variation that people are reporting. And one of them is this Cadborosaurus, what's become the classic Cadborosaurus. It has um, a long neck and a horse-like head and giraffe-like horns on the top of its head and a mane. Hmm. So it's sort of like, and the mane is like seaweed colored, kind of like you'd see uh, kelp. Right, it kind of looks like a sea dragon from what I've looked at. Like, Yeah, that's right, that's yeah. right. And like, a, what do you think those, so, I mean, is there is there a reasoning or behind what those horns would be for, or? Yeah, no, I don't know. You know, usually I think of horns as something to do with courtship, like yeah. the males are duking it out. They don't have as much of a function yeah, in mm -hmm. other, even in those really enormous big horn sheep are basically using their horns to bash in another big horn sheep. Get out of my territory. <laughs> or you think of like a narwhal, like a narwhal also has like that giant horn that it's not necessarily using. Yeah, right. That's right. It's yeah. it's odd. And I don't think there's still way more data that needs to be gathered and sorted on this. It's kind of like my my continuous rant with Sasquatch. There's a lot of I seen them kind of stuff out there. Uh, there's not a lot of really sort of scholarly that's going to stand up to a scientific vetting of uh, the evidence, right. uh, even in this report. But all the there's lots of in within this report. If you can get a copy of it, worth chasing down. Uh, Paul LeBlond and I'm trying to think who the other. I think Ed Bousfield is the other author. There's a lot of drawings, eyewitness drawings. And some are more sophisticated than others. The thing that's interesting, just like the Sasquatch stories, several of them are from people who would be out on the ocean a lot, like commercial fishermen. And, you know, they say, I, you know, I've seen lots of big seals and sea lions, even elephant seals, and this wasn't one of them. Hmm. So it's not just like they don't know what, you know, there's something out there, and all of a sudden it surprised me. Um, they are knowledgeable witnesses. Very interesting. And I think that that's when we talked about Bigfoot, too, you did talk about like a lot of the most credible evidence comes from those 
those those eyewitness reports that are very consistent and detailed, right? That's right. And it's impressive to me. They're not like from people who never went outdoors before and it was actually a bear or no, it was an elk. You saw the back of an elk. But these are people who know what they're what they would be looking at and they are perplexed at coming face to face with some large hominid like that. So you said that there's three types of uh, sightings. So the, the first type is the Cadborosaurus type. What are the other two? Well, there's another one that's very similar to Cadborosaurus, only has the large eyes. It doesn't have a mane, and it doesn't have those giraffe-like horns. Um, alas. So that's type two. And type three is basically, from the description, sounds like an oarfish. Yeah, okay. Case they even say... You know, it has a head like it has a head like a sheep. <laughs> you look at an oarfish, you go know right away what they're talking about. Yeah, uh, they're they're weird looking creatures. Yeah, and actually, I'm not going to accept this. They don't exist this far north. Uh, we have occurrences, you know, tidal uh, current shifts like El Nino events, where all of a sudden all the stuff that normally wouldn't be found here is swimming this far north, and then goes back. So maybe it's an anomaly. And we've had that weird warm uh, warm water blob off the coast now, too, for a while. It's interesting to note that this particular oarfish I was telling you about, the report of this oarfish on Whidbey Island says it has a rope around its neck. So maybe hmm. someone caught it and was traveling with it, thinking they were going to bring it into a next port they arrived at, and it, the rope broke or whatever, it got away. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to get, you know, that's the fun part of all this writing for me it's the research is a blast and then the actual sitting down and writing is hard work there's a great line i forget who originally said it i don't like to write i like to have written (laughs) all the way because i love to go out and talk about what's in my book but i hate actually getting to that point of writing the book i feel like i have days like that there's some days it feels good but most of the time it feels good once it's you know once it's done uh, and i've got it on the page but but right now that I'm in hog heaven gathering data, I think I was, I was uh, born to explore that way, and I just love it. It's yeah. great that there's, that other people have gone before. There are lots of books about Ogopogo and about even about Cadborosaurus that are just gold mines of information that I can look at. You know, I should also mention in here, um, the book I, te- I plan to write is going to be more like, a, and then I went here and talked to this guy, and less of a scholarly, like my book, Sasquatch, the Sasquatch Seekers Field Manual, is pretty third-person-y. This is going to yeah. be mostly first-person uh, adventure book. And to get up for it, I'm reading uh, John Steinbeck's Travels with Charlie, yeah. uh, written in 1960, where he travels around the United States with his poodle dog named Charlie and writes about the United States. That's been a great influence in terms of the style and approach of my own book. Uh, But there's also another book by John Steinbeck called Log from the Sea of Cortez. And that's about going around with uh, Ed Ricketts, a famous uh, marine biologist from uh, Monterey area. He's the character Doc in the book Cannery Row. But okay. this is a non this is nonfiction narrative nonfiction where he's traveling around the Sea of Cortez in Mexico with uh, Ed Ricketts, and there's a whole part in there where he talks about these guys finding what they think is a sea monster washed up on on shore 
when they actually get there to see it, there's already a note that someone's put on it that says, relax, it's just a dead basking shark. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, and there's a part, but then he goes on to say, in this essay, it's really a great essay, definitely worth finding, about how we need sea, men need sea monsters in their personal oceans. And he's like, when someone finds one complete and undecayed, a shout of triumph will go out. There, you know, I it was I you see, I knew it was there all along. I just knew there was something out there. Yeah. And he says, This is a great quotable quote. Uh, John Steinbeck says, uh, an ocean without sea monsters is like dreamless sleep. And we basically need something out there to satisfy that part of us. So I think that's a great section of that book. I think that's definitely true about the woods too, and just the wilderness in general. We need we need the unknown. Yeah, like, well, we know where the the uh, interlopers. When you're in the woods, everything else is much better adapted to getting through a couple of nights in a row without without help um, than we are. There's something that puts us on edge. You know, what was that noise? Kind of thing about any time we're in an area of this unfamiliar terrain. I don't care how experienced an outdoors person you are. So there's sort of the the ground floor of great mystery right there. Uh-huh. Certainly true in the ocean. Yeah, that's for sure. So, do you have any uh, ex- expeditions planned, uh, or are you are you done with the exploring part of your book and starting to get down to the the writing? Well, I'm going to start getting down to the writing, but I do have a bunch more stuff planned. This is a long term project for me. I yeah. should also say I'm delighted to not have a deadline yet. <laughs> you know, once you s- sell a book idea, then it's like how quickly can you get this thing done? And my my uh, Sasquatch book actually kind of cured me of that because it was such a tight deadline. I basically spent the entire summer out in a deck chair with my laptop writing, 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 writing to reach this ridiculous deadline. So it was a, not a pleasant experience. I like what came out of it, but I would really like not to have to deal with that. So I can easily see continuing to gather data for another year while I'm writing it. Uh, I have a trip to Loch Ness planned uh, next spring. Uh, my wife and I, are we teach um, science writing, and, and she does science illustration. And we've been invited to a bunch of schools in Switzerland. So that's a wonderful trip. It'll be a month's worth of work for us. But when we're done, we're, we're hightailing it over to northern Scotland and sightseeing a little bit with that. Um, I'm also in the summer of next year. I'd like to go up and I'm sure the whaling station isn't there anymore, but I'd just like to see the the setting for it and go all the way up to Haida uh, Gwaii and see what I can see up there. Yeah. I think I have a couple more trips, but well, like I said, I'm going to v- Victoria again in January. Yeah, those all sound wonderful. Those that'll be amazing, especially Switzerland and Loch Ness. I've never, I've never been, but it looks beautiful. And I understand there are people, of course, who pretty much make a livelihood out of selling little figurines or giving tours or you know, you name it. But there's just a lot of history of the Loch Ness monster. Most of what we, most of what we get excited about about Loch Ness goes all the way back into like early Celtic mythology. Yeah, that should be. And it sounds like, that does sound like hog heaven. It sounds amazing. Yeah. It's nice that we have so much wonder within driving distance 
I know Loch Ness <laughs> excluded. It's easy to get in a car and drive down to, to Yahats, Oregon, and go to the very site where this 1930s sighting took place. And you get a lot of good Bigfoot mythology going down the coast, too. Like, it's just, uh, it's nice to drive the, the coastal highway, and you can see all sorts of stuff down there. You know, I was talking with uh, Lauren Coleman. Oh, I've been trying to get him on. He's, he's, I know that he had some health problems recently, but I'd love to talk to him. Yeah, no, he's, he and I have known each other for a long time, and we sort of have the Mutual Admiration Society as freelance writers from way back when. Um, so I asked him about this OMAC, actually, OMAC Lake. He had some sighting in one of his books some information and I asked him about that and he said well I must have gotten I wrote it a long time ago I can't really remember but I bet I got it out of and then he turned me on to this amazing book that's a biogeographical atlas of anomalies and I can't remember the author's name it's a really thick book of state by state of all these weird things everything from UFO sightings or Sasquatch sightings to uh, spontaneous human combustion, or uh, there's one that's, I'm trying, oh, it's a, it says it's an anomaly kangaroo sighting in Puyallup, Washington. So, so there's this, like, all, it's just like a font of, and it's basically a, it's a bibliography. So it's just a uh, listing of state by state of all these weird things that people have seen by region. It's huh. a, I, I need to actually own a copy. Fortunately, I got it out of the library at UW, so so I can keep it for six months or something like that. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Well, I think that's that's all the questions I've got for this time. But if I, uh, I mean, I know that you're doing a lot of stuff with uh, with your bug cooking. I keep I, I see that pop up from time to time. But if you want to tell everybody else where they can find info on you and what you're doing, I know it looks like you have a Patreon for your upcoming book as well, right? Yeah, that's right. Although I'm kind of wondering whether it was worth the trouble, quite frankly. <laughs> so far, the the uh, contributions have not been overwhelming. So I'm not really sure whether I'm going to keep that going. I do have a website that's just me, davidgeorgegordon.com, that talks about all my stuff. And then, of course, I have a, my own page on Facebook that's uh, Sasquatch Seekers. So I like to write about including the sea serpent what I'm up to and where I'm going to be speaking next and things like that. So I would direct people to that. Awesome. Well, cool. Thanks for coming on again. As always, it's very interesting. I can't wait to put this out. It's going to, it'll be a few weeks before I get to put it out, but I, I people are really going to dig this. Uh, for the holiday season. Yeah. You know, the holiday serpent as they always sit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I do want to say that if people are listening to this program and they have things they want to contribute, I'm not one of these authors who likes to go, oh, leave me alone. I'm busy. You know, don't bother me. I actually really kind of thrive on getting stories from other people. So if you have them, uh, I'll just be out there and say my, my email address is just david at davidgeorgegordon.com. So that's the way to go. And I can confirm David's very responsive. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you responded to us. You were our first guest, and we're pretty small. So as always, we appreciate it. Well, I'm happy to be on this program. I love talking with you as well. You're now part of the Lauren Coleman Club of people who have actually made a living 
somehow yeah. meager living out of a writing. So that's a, that puts you in a small group of people just right there. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll have to I'll have to tell him that we're in the same club, and then maybe then we can get him on the podcast. And be like, yeah, David said we're in the same club. Lauren, come on, you gotta you gotta come on here. Well, I'll put the word for you next time I talk to him because I have a couple of questions to throw his way as well. Well, that's all we have this week for Cryptids Decrypted. This is honestly one of the most fun interviews I've ever done. And, you know, who knew that there were tunnels that sea monsters could travel through into the Columbia River? Maybe that's a fact you bring up at your uh, your holiday dinner and you say, hey, you know, I learned that on Cryptids Decrypted. And they'll be like, what's Cryptids Decrypted? And you will say, the best podcast I've ever listened to my in my entire life. And, and then, you know, from there, we get some more followers. So I appreciate uh, in advance you ruining your holiday dinners for us. Now, we're going to be back in probably two or three weeks, again, depending on my editing time, with a new episode format called Cryptid Royale. John, Tyler, and I are each going to be picking an aquatic cryptid. We're going to come armed with knowledge. We're going to come armed with the history of that particular mystery, and we're going to try and duke it out and see who's got the most believable cryptid. Uh, you know, or maybe we'll just see who would win in a fight. Maybe there will be multiple categories. We're trying it for the first time. So when that comes out, we'd love to hear your feedback on it. Anyways, I'll see you guys soon. Thanks again for listening. Please share this podcast around if you're enjoying it. Make sure to rate us if you're on iTunes. And as always, just thanks for being a listener. We love you guys.